welcome back to the New York Film Academy Hour. I'm your host, Joel Smith, and today we're talking all things Oscars on a scale of like Whoopi Goldberg to James Franco. How well did our hosts do? We're going to talk about it. Stay tuned. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. Hey guys, obviously we're back in the studio. We have Peter Rayner. Introduction unnecessary at this point, but if you haven't read his book, I just want to encourage you to pick it up. Again, Rayner on film. It is amazing. Some of the best stuff you're going to read right in there about movies. Uh, I don't want to waste any time because there is a lot to talk about in this Oscars. And we, you know, we talked a little bit before the show. Oscars has been having a lot of up and down. Uh, They're trying to find their audience, right? And... Last year we saw them, you know, okay, we'll open the gates to diversity and we'll bring in a whole new class of Oscar people that is different than any other class we've seen before. Uh, But that did not change who was running things or who was hosting the show. What were your general thoughts on the Oscars? Yeah, well, also the ratings. I mean, it's not really the fault of the Oscars that the ratings are down uh, necessarily because it's true of all major uh, awards events and things that go on in television now. Uh, But the... The attempt to get more uh, younger people to watch the show uh, was part and parcel of the expansion of the Best Picture category from 5 to 10 a number of years ago, because they thought if you have 10 instead of 5, 10 maximum, that you can have films like Dark Knight and and uh, you know Wonder Woman and uh, I guess the thought being that if your heart was really into like one of these superhero genre films or something that's not typically for the Oscars, you'd be more likely to watch. Yeah, I, I think it, it comes down to an audience thing. It, it, people don't watch the Oscar shows um, if the movies are not big hit movies to begin with. It's just that you know the year the Titanic was up, they got huge ratings. If there was an equivalent, or if you know the Avatar part, whatever comes up, and or Black Panther, you know, in in the next year or or, or so, uh, if those are nominated, then probably the ratings will 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 go back up again. This has nothing to do with the art of film or the quality of film or anything to do with that, which is often the case with the Oscars in general. I have to add, uh, I mean, the Oscars are a whole lot of fun or can be, you know, to watch and participate in. Um, but I've never taken them to be, uh, you know, an absolute indication of excellence. The number of, of best movies of the year that actually were the best movies of the year are, are few and far between. Few and far you in know, between. The Godfather was the best film of the year, of almost any year. Uh, and, you know, and there are a few other examples like that. But, uh, you know, a colleague of mine, Danny Perry, once said a book about the alternative Oscars from the first year of, of films that, that should have been, you know, should have won or even been nominated and were yeah. not. You know, Vertigo was, was not nominated. Nominated. Uh, Gordon Willis, uh, who shot uh, Godfather 1 and 2 and many other films, the, both of the Godfather films were not even nominated for Best Cinematography. That, that is insane. I mean, it's totally insane. It. it, it I mean, forget that forget, final shot in Godfather. I feel like today would have solidified it alone. Like, yeah, I, you know, so that's why everybody was happy that Roger Deakins won Best Cinematographer for Blade Runner because a he's a great cinematographer. He B, is an excellent cinematographer. You know, and he's and this is I think his fourteenth nomination he's this year without really ever having been... won. So you know that was nice. 
Uh, but what the Academy tends to do is they give honorary Oscars to people who they, they uh, oops. So, you know, Willis Doesn't at one feel point. kind of false to you? It, it always rings as a false note to me because yeah. when you then look back at Roger Deakins' incredible career, you're like, well, for Blade Runner was the best thing he's ever shot. You know, a lot of people, Cary Grant never got, you know, Kobe Bryant got an Oscar, but Cary Grant never did, you know, or it's Alfred Hitchcock uh, for a film that he directed and so forth. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy. So that's why I say you have to take all this stuff with a grain of salt or a ton of salt. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, having said that, I think, um, you know, I, I don't think it was the world's greatest movie year, period. And so, therefore, that translates to some extent to, to, to the show. Sure. I do think my favorite films uh, of the nine that were nominated, and, and couldn't they have made it ten? What's the problem? You know, the the big sick could have been one of the ten. Absolutely, Florida Project, probably my favorite movie of the year. A lot of people really enjoyed you know, that movie. I mean, the only got one nomination: Willem Dafoe mm-hmm. for supporting actor. And in my opinion, he should have won that. You know, Sam Rockwell. I'm I three billboards for me is a problematic movie. We've talked about this. Yeah, yes, yeah, and I think that the Sam Rockwell, he's very funny and affable and jaunty. Sam in that Rockwell's role. an incredible actor, but for this role. Really? Yeah, I mean, it's he's, he's playing a vile racist who throws people through windows, etc., and somehow he's supposed to be redeemed, but um, I don't think they dealt with who that character is at all, and so I just found that really problematic. Um, I like Phantom Thread a lot. I think that was one That's of the nine. gorgeous film. Um, and um, uh, I mentioned Big Sick and Get Out, which mm. is you know one of my very favorite films of the year. Just a terrific movie. I'm, I'm glad that one so... screenplay. Now, we had talked about this. This was a huge one for us. It's one of the few that we agreed upon should definitely, without question, win yeah. the award. I was not shocked to see it, but man... The reactions, not just from the crowd, but like to see his writing part- partner, uh, Keegan Michael Key, like in the back, jumping up and down, right. freaking out, you know, for his friend. Uh, and then, of course, he's the first black guy to win this, first yeah. black person to win this award. Let's check out uh, Jordan Peele's speech real quick. Because um, he is moving and lovely. Uh, you guys are going to mess up my jet ski. Hold up. <laughs> um. <laughs> This uh, means so much to me. I I, I stopped writing this movie about 20 times because I thought it was impossible. I thought it wasn't going to work. I thought no one would ever make this movie. But I kept coming back to it because I knew if someone let me make this movie, that people would hear it and people would see it. So I want to dedicate this to all the people who raised my voice and let me make this movie. Donna, Ron at Universal, everybody. QC, Sean. Uh, uh, Ted, Bea, Jason <laughs> at, at Blumhouse. You guys, thank you so much. Yeah. To the cast and crew, I love you. Thank you so much. My wife, who supported me through this whole process. My mother, who taught me to love uh, even in the face of hate. And to everybody who went and saw this movie. Everybody who, who bought a ticket, who told somebody to buy I a ticket. I saw it three times because it was that good. Uh, I love you um, for shouting out at the theater. I'm really looking forward to seeing it in black and white. I hear that's going to be pretty cool. Oh, it's black and white? I think they're going to do a black and white. Y'all, don't quote me on this. But I think they're going to do a black and white version on the DVD. Um, Why? I, it's a thing people are doing now. We did it for Logan, uh, had an entire black and white release, and then what was the other one? Uh, uh, Mad Max Fury Road got a black and chrome edition. Which, wait, which one? Mad Max Fury Road. Yes, that one. Black and chrome. It sure yeah. did. 
black and chrome. That's great marketing right there. I really appreciate <laughs> the stretch on that. But it's just like a thing we're doing now, I guess. And I, wow. it, makes, it makes my inner art house kid be like, excited i know that you know it's not filmed for black and white but who cares it's gonna be fun anyway it's just a new way for me have a different idea about all that they usually do color uh, correction lighting (laughs) and all thrown overboard but this speech rings out for a couple of reasons not just because of its historic importance but i think it's historic in a way that we're not quite talking about yet which is the blumhouse which has basically makes very low budget slasher films up until yeah. this point when they made the turn into political thrillers. Do you think that this changes or alters in any way the landscape of for production houses like this? Uh, you mean like at least on the road to the Oscars, like right. and being able to make. Because okay, so another this also loops back into the fact that we're not seeing a lot of middle budget films anymore. You're either like very bottom of the barrel, you know, two, three million dollars, which sounds like a lot, kids, but it's really not on a film set to these, you know, 200, you know, nearly a billion dollar right. features. Um, I I just feel like maybe they so. could turn a tide. Yeah. Yeah, man, I hope so. It's uh, nothing speaks like success in, in the movie business. And if you make a movie uh, on a relatively low budget, which is certainly true of Get Out, and it does extremely well, not to mention being a, a really good movie and winning Oscars, that... That that ought to be an indication. I've never understood why it is that more uh, more of the money people in the movie business don't finance more low budget movies because most movies don't make their money back. Uh, and if you make a, a movie that's 150 million dollar budget, which is I think so average now for mm-hmm. a studio picture or 200 or plus, it has to it has to make like you know a half a billion dollars to break even. Whereas if you make a movie for fifteen or twenty million, it only has to make about fifty million, and so, and you can make four movies for the price of one, and you you quadruple your odds of having a hit. When Easy Rider and those movies were out in you know in the late sixties and seventies, that was part of the thinking that a lot of the studios had these big clinkers like Doctor Doolittle and whatnot, and they said, well, let's let's give the keys to the kingdom to all these hippies and see if they can make, you know, low-budget movies that'll make $300 million. And that worked for a while, and then it didn't. But I still think it's a good it's a good idea for, for financial success. It's also a much, much better idea for making better movies because the bigger your budgets, the more likely you are to, to take fewer chances. It's just the way it is. You're not going to take a lot of chances if you're making a $200 million movie. Uh, Not only that, but like, let's look at the fact that we've by a lot overworking our post-production houses. These things are opening and closing at rapid fire rates. Um, with, and, and we're seeing, getting films unfinished. In the, it's just like a Wild West kind of era yeah. in Hollywood right now. Like yeah. Black Panther had something like 100 unfinished shots. Uh, we saw what happened with Justice League and the incomplete mustache <laughs> fiasco. Um, it it's intriguing to me that we keep pushing that way. And I, and I do hope we find middle ground because not only are you more likely to get – you know, just by odds you're going to have more successful films. But I think people are also more passionate about their small projects. Like you can give someone who's like, this is my baby and I love it and maybe no one else will get it. But like yeah. I will work really hard for you to get this film out there. Yeah, I, I think uh, – you know, I wasn't as nuts about Lady Bird as, as most people are, but I enjoyed it a lot. That's another example of a sort of, you know, handcrafted movie by someone who wrote and directed it. 
you know, for, for a relatively low budget because she really cared about this story. And, um, you know, there were no space invaders in it. There were no big special effects and so forth. And, uh, and I, I believe that did well commercially also. Um, it, it, it really comes down to, uh, you know, do you want to make movies that you care about or do you just want to keep making these movies that you think are going to, uh, you know, be a bonanza? Because that often doesn't work anyway. If you set out to make a hit movie... A lot of times, unless it's a sequel to a hit movie and all the elements are in place. And even then, we saw Transformers do that horrible downward spiral of, like, selling out films to theaters and arenas to, like, even stage, uh, like, arena shows to no one wanted to see the last one, even though they were like, okay, we'll go... You have to see the movie. Well, I, I begged off of that one. <laughs> I just, I said, I, I can't see another Transformers movie. I'm drawing a line in the I sand. I can't. Yeah, I, the third yeah. one did it for me, too. Uh, when you have racist robots, I, I just can't, <laughs> I can't push past that. Um, and yet there's something, and, and I feel like maybe by getting more of these middle ground films, we'll get more, like, these films used to be so epic and amazing. Like I remember going to the theater when I was like a wee thing and, and to see something in IMAX was just astounding. It had to be so big and technically impressive. Um, and now I feel like we're kind of unfazed by that. We had a little spike of it. Some people felt during Avatar, which special effects wise, you couldn't deny the film story. You might have some feelings yeah. about. Um, yeah. So, and I, I think it's interesting that we're talking about this here and that it's reflected in the Oscars because for its 90th, I expected the Oscars to go, like, all out. Like, their set design was incredible and very impressive with the paneling. But other than that, like, no giant performances. All the performances were very simple, clean, in and out quickly. Um, no big sketches that kind of, you know, stop the show with all of the stars. The same bit from last year with the, like, let's go meet regular folks do you think the oscars is taking a a cue from the industry um and is there anything you think they can do to regain their audience or is the oscars you know kind of a fading i don't want to say memory but something of the old that we're just kind of clinging to well it still has extremely high ratings relative to what's out there it's just that it was like a 20 percent dip or something this year um but you know like i said that's not that unusual for award shows now almost all of which have have decreased uh, in audience because of, of the, you know, the internet and Netflix, people just sort of watching bits and pieces um, on YouTube and not actually sitting through the whole show. Um, and so that, that that's a problem. If you had, I mean, hypothetically, let's say Black Panther is, is way up there next year in major categories. The, I guarantee you the viewership is going to go way up. That's how it works. You know, and the year, of, uh, no, the year that No Country for Old Men won Best Picture, viewership was way down. Uh, because, you know, it just wasn't a grabby movie. This year you had a couple of old-school movies that normally would have been big Oscar pictures, like Dunkirk and um, Darkest Hour. But especially Dunkirk, you know, this big panoramic widescreen war movie, um, uh, historical epic, and that's the kind of film that would traditionally win the Oscar and also bring in viewers. But that didn't really happen, I don't think. Um, no, on either front. And yet, interestingly, still walked away with the most awards for the night, but not the big ones. Right, the, the technical stuff, yeah. I'm just going to make a very brief, angry cavil here of the Ooh. personal nature. You know when they have those in-memoriam things? Yes, absolutely. And, and, and everybody gets like three or four seconds max mm-hmm. put in there? 
So my good friend and colleague, the late Richard Schickel, was uh, was put up for this. I, I know because I, I was part of a campaign um, to do this with some very high-level people involved. And guess what? He went on the show. Now, I don't know why that is. Uh, this guy uh, wrote 37 books on the history of film. Many of them are classics. He did 37 movies that he produced, written, directed about the history of film, documentaries. Uh, he was a member of the Producers Guild, the Writers Guild, the Directors Guild. He actually produced and directed and wrote several um, segments for the Oscar show uh, in tributes to directors like Elia Kazan and Satyajit Ray. Andrew Saris, Manny Farber, and Charles Champlin were all recognized in the past, so there's a precedent for this sort of thing. I, you know, unfathomable. Okay, now I'm done. I mean, we've, <laughs> we've seen this a lot uh, in the past, when, especially when crew members die on set, which is always a horrible tragedy. Um, and last year, the, that, or was it two years ago now? I'm getting old. <laughs> a couple of years ago, they were like, okay, well, our, our answer to this will be we'll just put them up right before commercials because they would have a host in the aisle talking, you know, like, stay tuned. This is coming up next. And while they're doing their spiel, it was essentially their name in a small photo, which, you know, <laughs> if we have to sit there for 10 minutes to honor our dead, I don't, th- especially because the whole idea, I think, of the Oscars is a community coming together to celebrate the cream of its crop. I don't. I don't think anyone would mind staying a little bit extra. But I, I get there's programming and a lot of things that go into it, and it must be a terrible decision to have to make who makes it and and who doesn't. But I also think that you know, well, they made the absolute wrong decision on this one. And the other thing is the Oscars don't have. There's not enough sense of history. It used to be that they had these special governor awards, yes. you know, and they were on stage these 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 people, mm-hmm. and, and and you know, so so now they have a special dinner, which uh, is fine, you know, gives a lot of time, and they film it, and it's 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 a wonderful event, but then they show like three seconds of it on the actual telecast. So you know, Gordon Willis, I mentioned, got one you know a number of years ago, and and Marjorie Corman and Jean Luc Godard and 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 Agnes Varda and so forth. Why isn't that at least featured a little more in you know in terms of of some of the clips from the actual dinner if not having them on the stage you know this industry has has a memory about 3 seconds long about you know who why are these people there it's because of their forebears i i agree wholeheartedly and it's interesting that we're talking about looking back a lot of people are looking ahead at at what comes next as we enter more of a digital age, as we look at television being able to rival storytelling capabilities of film, um, and as we look at the changing political landscape, um, just the idea that um, the editor-in-chief of the tracking board, uh, who's, I'm so sorry, his name always escapes me. And Jeff I just Seymour. Jeff Snyder. Yeah, Snyder. yeah, yeah, Jeff okay. Snyder. Um, who, I've met Jeff, and I really like Jeff. I think he's a cool dude. Um, he sent out this tweet earlier, um, basically saying, uh, I don't walk out of movies thinking about, I, I'm sorry, thinking about isms. Uh, or identity politics, but this is what younger critics seem to be engaging in these days. The conversation surrounding movies has shifted beneath our feet. Do we shift with it or stand our ground? Which, the shift with it or stand our ground to me essentially sounds like I don't understand why people are intrigued more by 
the visual aspects, i.e. being race, gender representation, who made the film, as opposed to just the story that's on the screen. And with, you know, in reading the comments, I can see a lot on both sides, truly and honestly. Like, I get some film purists, (laughs) which I really don't like the term, but, you know... I get people who are like, all I want is a good story. It doesn't matter anything beyond that to me. But to me, you know, as a person who loved film and didn't see themselves, it's it's impossible for me to separate the message yeah. uh, slash who's making it to the end story to that effect, Wrinkle in Time, which I can recognize as not being the greatest movie of all time, but still held a really important significance to me. And I was wondering, as somebody who's been in criticism for a long time and made their stamp on it, do you walk out of a film going, you know, it's just the story, nothing else? No. No. I mean, that's just who I am, but I I don't think... I don't think with any, uh, you know, good critic that that's really ever been the case. If you just talk about a movie in terms of, you know, story, plot, the cinematography was good, check, the acting was good, check. You know, the great thing about writing about movies is that you can talk about them on so many different levels. And and particularly in fallow periods where the movies aren't all that great, uh, there's still a lot to talk about in terms of the sociological aspect of film, how films reflect society. And all of that, which I think is 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 really fascinating. It's not what drew me to movies. I didn't go to movies when I was a little kid because I wanted to see, you know, the right gender representation. I went because you know it was a wonderful story, and I loved the actors, and it was exciting. And that's still the impulse I think that draws all of us to movies. But there's more to movies than that. Uh, not all movies, but I think you know it's it's. I don't think it's an either or situation. You know, isms versus just going there to enjoy the movie, quote unquote. I think that that you can do both. And Get Out is is an, is a perfect example because that's a movie you could. I saw that twice with an audience, and and the audience was with it like, you know, like you often hear in like really good horror movie or something. That, yeah. You know, screaming on cue and laughing on cue and really eating it up, and and you can enjoy the movie perfectly on that level. You know, without getting into some of the other things that it's also about. But one of the things that critics try to do is 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 bring in those other things. You know, so that if 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 it wasn't recognized when you saw the movie, that it, it adds a dimension to it. In the same way that you know, The Godfather, I'm sure, was experienced by most audiences as just a really good gangster movie with all these you know gangster things going on in it, as opposed to the larger scope of what that film is about, that this was sort of like this, this you know, nightmare version of, of, of the American dream, you know, that these immigrants came and this is what happened to them and it's sort of an alternate universe uh, uh, world of, of, you know, of capitalism, of, of, of the American dream gone bad. And, I mean, all of those things can be discussed. It's not the immediate response to that movie that you have and for some people that's the immediate response is, is all that you have and that's mm-hmm. okay. But but I think you're 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 missing something as as a as a as a serious critic if you don't bring in all of those elements you know not because you have to but because you know you should want to because this is movies are about so many different things it's exciting I I, I couldn't agree with you more uh, my favorite film critic was Roger Ebert I'm from Chicago and so that was right. all I knew was Ebert and Roper coming up right. um, and and I, what I always valued from his reviews was how much emotion he put into it and he would straight up say like maybe it's just not for me but like right. these are very staunchly my opinions um, and to your point about you know film criticism I, I think. 
especially I, I'm sure you've seen a lot about the Rotten Tomato scandal lately where people there's a, a huge Trying debate as to whether fix the the numbers. Yeah, you know? yeah, or or somehow critics are against the studio system. Like we want it to cra- We want films to fail, and we just hate movies for some reason, which makes very little sense. Of why said, would you the, get in the this studios business? Probably promoted that idea. They sure no, um, they do. They're like we don't even care about the Rotten Tomato score, and it's like well, okay, that's fine. It's really not there for you. It's just potentially a guide right. of like what do these critics think about. Um, and I, I find it so valuable to be reading critics. Someone pointed out to me the other day that uh, Thor Ragnarok is essentially a tale of Aboriginal freedom, and and trying to and what is that like to try to get your freedom after your culture's been stolen from you, to the point where there's an Aboriginal flag when uh, Tessa Thompson's crossing the Rainbow Bridge. I right. had no, I right. never could have picked up that story. Right. So yeah, it's just such a. I'm really glad we got to talk about all of this because I, I feel like there's so much changing and happening in Hollywood and trying to keep up, especially in the age of social media. It's such a challenge. Yeah, well, you know, the, the Rotten Tomato syndrome is that, um, you know, people always, the studios always attack critics for saying, well, you don't, you don't like big Hollywood movies. You only like these small scale, you know, foreign films, independent mm-hmm. movies, films with subtitles. Uh, you know, you don't like movies that make a lot of money, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It, it's not really true, I, particularly these days when, you know, you're just desperate to see anything good. Yes. Uh, you know, and there are plenty of studio pictures that, that I've, you know, enjoyed over the years, even recently. Um, but, it, it, you know, I don't, I don't review a movie based on its budget. And I, I almost never mention the budget, even when it's way out of sight in, in a review, because, you know, what are you going to keep mentioning the budget? But pretty soon you're going to be, uh, you know, the uh, the doing the the the, the roundup for uh, the box office scores every week. You, you don't want to go there. If movies are what they are. They cost what they cost. Yes, the the budget of this movie could have paid for a hospital in Zimbabwe, <laughs> but you know, it's it's it doesn't work that way. Uh, I think. Just speaking for myself, and I think for a lot of my colleagues, critics um, like, you know, critics are people too. You know, critics are, uh, uh, Soylent Green is people, I says. (laughs) 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 You know, and so we like the same things that everybody else likes, except we've seen more movies and maybe have more to say about the movies we've seen. But, uh, you know, in the end... You want to be entertained, and then some. And and whoever provides that, more power to them. Totally. Uh, I feel like you critics cannot exist without the art, and I don't think anybody who critiques or wants to look at art for a living hates themselves enough to do it because they don't like art. Like it just, it's just a complete fallacy to be like, oh, you got yeah. into this just so you could shame movies. Or the other argument I hear a lot is like, well, you couldn't make movies, so now you're out here just critiquing other people. And it's like, look, man, even if you know we didn't like your film, that's no judgment against you as a human being. Yeah. Or, or your work or your capability to make a film. It's just maybe this one no. did not sit for us. I, um, I, I often find, you know, people will say to me, gee, you don't like anything. And I say, well, so like, what, for example? And they, and they say, well, you don't like this and this and this. I said, well, have you seen those films? Well, no, but you just don't like all these films. I said, why don't you go back and see them, and then we'll talk. And sometimes it happens. They come back and say, you know, you were too kind. You were too kind. You know? 
I, if anything, critics are more likely to like something in a movie that the average uh, moviegoer would not like because if you see 250 to 300 movies a year, which is what I do and many of my colleagues, you, you want anything in that movie to be good. You'll overvalue it if there's a, a single performance or something. I've certainly done it before. You know, where people yeah, like, really? I mean, you used to go on about, gee, that was, a, was such a terrific performance. Yeah, but what about the, the movie sucked? Yeah, but that performance was really good. It kept me going through the whole movie, man. I was tired. Yeah, but people don't, you know, and they say, well, you don't have to pay. And this is actually an interesting point. It says, well, for the most part, you don't have to pay to see movies as a critic. Mm. Therefore, you don't have to make the kinds of choices that we hardworking people who have to spend our money, to what, what are we going to pay our money to see? I understand that argument, you know, but that still doesn't take away from the fact that if, if I say this is a film that I think is worth seeing, uh, translation, uh, I, th- I would think this is money well spent. I'm saving people a lot of money by saying don't go to these terrible movies if, if they, you know, bother to... to but I always say to people, if if you really want to see a movie and then say you read me and I don't like it, tough. Don't see the movie anyway. Don't go – don't throw it overboard just because of what I said or some other critic. You know, you, you, you need to, to trust your own judgments, you, your own feelings. You may end up hating it too. You may love it and say this guy's full of it. But – but the first and foremost, uh, you should trust your own job. I always want people to read my reviews after they've seen the movie. Mm. Um, that's not very realistic. <laughs> but, you know. Uh, and with Rotten Tomatoes, I've, a lot of the movie companies, particularly the boutique companies, the, 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 the uh, indie comp- classics uh, divisions, they have, not so much recently, but I've gotten calls saying, you know, that review that you wrote, they have it down as a as a splatter but it's a fresh you know um uh how do you read it you know because we want to appeal it to rotten tomatoes appeal the the designation yeah sure and and it's a big deal or they'll say like you know you haven't gotten around to reviewing this film how about reviewing it translation how about liking it so it'll get a better rotten tomato score so, I mean, it, it, it does factor into the discussion in that sense. It's definitely something they're thinking about. I've definitely had PR agents, especially now that you have to send your reviews in, like, immediately after seeing the movie. They're like, you just give us, like, a paragraph example of how you're feeling. I've been like, so we are sending this to the studio. Like, I told you the truth the first time. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm not crazy about giving reactions. There are a few old-time publicists that I'm friends with who I say, all right. Usually I just say mixed, and that, that gets... Off, off my back, <laughs> but but it's it's also it's not entirely a line when I say I don't really know what I think about the film until I've written about it. I mean, I certainly know if I come out of a movie and it's like wow or mm. ugh, but um, but sometimes in the course of writing about a film, you discover things in it that maybe meant more to you than you realized at the time or less. Or you know what is what you like sort of burns off after the first day, or or it stays with you. You know, it's it's not these publicists who ambush you as you walk out of the screening. Is it? So what do you think? Uh, you know, on many levels, it doesn't really uh, compute with how critics operate. Yeah, definitely. I'm and I'm the annoying one who's always like, "Is there a second screening of this? I need to see a movie like two or three times to have like the most genuine feelings about, unless it leaps off the screen for me, in which case I can go home and like jot it all down." Uh, I do want to circle us back to the Oscar scene. This conversation is very fascinating (laughs) to me. Um, I want to talk. We talked a little bit about politics. Um, This is the year of women. A lot of people are calling it, and the Times Up campaign. And Frances McDormand um, was going to have a big 
big jelly. She was one of the ones people knew she was going to win. Um, there wasn't a lot of debate about it. I was secretly hoping for a Sally Hawkins upset. Not because I like one more than the other, but just Sally's performance was out of sight. Right. Um, Not to mention her performance in Maudie this year, which nobody you, saw. You told us yeah. about this movie. I still need to see Maudie. Yeah. Um, but Frances did win. And at the end of her speech, she says something interesting. Let's take a quick look. Thank you to the oh, this is Coco. We were looking for Frances McDormand. Coco is proof. <laughs> this is also an interesting well, speech, Frances though. McDormand's clip was stolen <laughs> along with her Oscar. Her Oscar was stolen, <laughs> which was, I can't even returned, believe. Yeah. So fast. So fast these things happen. If I fall over, pick me up because I've got some things to Love say. Love her energy. <laughs> I know you are proud of me. And that fills me with everlasting joy. And now I want to get some perspective. <laughs> if I may be so honored to have all the female nominees in every category stand with me in this room tonight. The actors, Meryl, if you do it, everybody else will. Come on. The filmmakers, the producers, the directors, the writers, the cinematographer, the, the composers, the songwriters, the, 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 the designers. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Miss Boyne. <laughs> it's precious, never change. Okay, look around, everybody. Look around, ladies and gentlemen, because we all have stories to tell and projects we need financed. So interesting that ABC cut it off there because at the end of it, she says something. It, that was a really beautiful, moving moment. But at the end, she has this very profound statement where she says, I just want to say two words, which is uh, inclusion writer, diversity writer, diversity writer. Um, which I think it was you, inclusion writer, but was it inclusion writer? Yeah. Okay. Uh, either way, uh, her, her the goal of that message is where you go, you need to be bringing in the change that you seek. Um, if you are a star, which most people in that room were, uh, you get to ask for things when you show up. Now, some people are like, "I want all white furniture and my M M&M and M separated by color." Some people, <laughs> like Robin Williams, was like, "When you hire me, you have to what is it? Ten percent of the crew you hire has to be homeless." And I will eat whatever they eat. Oh, I, yeah, which is yeah. an incredible gesture to say where I go, I'm going to just be spreading some of my wealth and some of the help. Mm-hmm. Um, which to me, it's so interesting now that like we had James Franco was, you know, talked about being nominated endlessly um, until the reports came out. Um, not been, I don't think there's been any conclusion to those reports right. as of yet, um, but it definitely took his name off of the ballot. Um Casey didn't come back this year to present because of the accusations against him reported in, I believe, Vanity Fair and Hollywood Reporter. Um, I wonder how this will change, like, who gets hired initially. And we've seen a lot of people lose shows and things, but I have a feeling if history repeats itself that, like, in two or three years, you know... uh, yeah. Frank Underwood, I cannot remember his actual name, Kevin <laughs> Spacey. Spacey, will be back. You know what I mean? Like, you can't, and then we saw, you know, um, uh, the guy who won for Best Act, I'm so bad with names right now, I don't know why this is happening to Gary me. Oldman. Gary Oldman has been accused of some things in his past, but was able to win this year. With The politics kind of being shaky and new, and 
with a lot of this movement happening from the faces in front of the camera and not necessarily the powers that be in hiring, do you think all of this conversation long term has an effect or is Hollywood going to be what Hollywood has always been, which mm-hmm. is mostly a business and a, about who brings who into theaters? Yeah, I, I, my sense of it is that this is different this time. That uh, in the past, you know, you have all these sort of big movements and, and then nothing happens. But um, I do think that it's going to require people in positions of power to to actively say, uh, you need to pay these people better. You know, you need to pay your, your, your female co-stars on a level with male co-stars. The reason why these actors get as much money as they do is because... Someone has figured out that globally, they're they're worth it. They bring in enough money so that they're worth these salaries. Um, but why is it that uh, I mean, Gal Gadot is is I would guess going to get an absolute fortune for any Wonder Woman movie that comes out, not for any other movie that she might appear in, but for Wonder Woman. You know, that's just a matter of supply and demand. Uh, but I do think that if Susan Sarandon came out with an anecdote today or yesterday where she said in, in, in regards to the, uh, you know, the inclusion writer that um, when she did a film with Paul Newman called Twilight that he found out that she was making a great deal less than he was and she was essentially like, you know, had the same screen time, the same everything as him. So he said, well, I'll give you some of my salary to make up the difference. Hmm. And, you know, and if, if more people thought like that, the, the whole hoo-ha with Mark Wahlberg getting a million and a half to do reshoots on all the money can buy, whereas um, um, Michelle Williams got, like, scale for the reshoots, had to do with Mark Wahlberg's agent. And the fact that it, in his contract it said if you do reshoots, you got to negotiate what you're going to get paid, whereas apparently she, who had the same agent, didn't have that. Well, she should have had that contract. He ultimately gave his money to me too, I think, you know. Yeah. But but you need people in positions of power. Actors, you know, agents have to be very much on, on the stick about this. That if you set up a contract with a co-star, they have to get paid. And if, and if they don't like it, lump it. Uh, but the problem is a lot of people are so desperate for work that they'll accept, you know, uh, something that's far less than what they should be getting just to get the work. Um, if you're a first-time actor and you somehow hit it big and you're co-starring in a movie, I've known instances like this where the, you know they got $40,000, whereas wow. the co-star got $2 million. It's because uh, you, know, you would pay me $40,000 to be the star of a Hollywood movie, so we're paying you $40,000 you know, and, and be lucky that you're getting it. There's no one way to do it, but I do think that... Um, you know, in terms of the harassment situation, you could do you could do away with a lot of it by just saying, no more meetings except in offices, uh, with the door open, with someone present. Uh, but can Hollywood you know. really work that way? I mean, we do so much business we'll out of see. hotels. I mean, I spend yeah. a great deal of time in hotels with people I've never met before, right. and not for anything. So we're just literally where that's where all of the work happens, especially once we get to like festival season. Um, so it'll – I definitely think some things need to change. I think we're starting to see a lot of good improvement. Uh, one thing I've been hearing a lot that I'm kind of uh, excited about is a lot of people are encouraging men to just share with your female colleagues how much you're making. 
just <laughs> drop that number on them and yeah, let them take things into their own hands and start making decisions right. and being like, hey, you know, I know for a fact that you're paying other people this X amount more than me. We do about the same amount of work. Let's try to get closer to that number. Um, it's it's tough. I remember many years ago I worked for a newspaper and, and, and there was some, you know, union dissension in the in the, in the uh Higher ups were were screwing around, so somebody posted on the on the board what everybody was making. They got all, and it was like, really, this person's making that. Wow. I mean, this, you know, it was it was not it was not great. Um, but I I think you know in the end, I think there will be some small incremental change at the very least. I don't think it's going to be some sea change where suddenly all actresses who are co-starring with with male stars are getting the same, etc. You know, it's too competitive a business. There are too many uh, people who want the same job that you have, and therefore you're willing to take a lot less and do a lot less and and put up with, you know, harassment and whatnot to to get to where you are. It's just a fact of life. Uh, But I do think it can be improved. And and they have to be better better recourse when when these bad things happen, mm. you know, with 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 not only law enforcement but with you know the the, the guilds, that that there has to be a clear line of of reporting of these offenses, um, so that that you know something can be done about it in the moment, not fifteen years later. Um, so, you know, it's 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 a, it's a it's a wild, wide open business. It's not like almost any other business, the movie business. Um, but of course, all of these issues go on in, in in everything aside from movies too, you know, which is where mm-hmm. where the real problems are overall. You know that that people just aren't getting paid what they should get paid because of of you know of, of gender and whatever. Uh, it shouldn't be that way. Um, I think that's absolutely the reason why people are attracted to this business in the first place. Is there's like. Uh, there's an excitement about it. The fact that you're not working like a regular job, the fact that you are constantly on the move um, and meeting new people and all that stuff creates like, it's like a warm buzz and excitement. Plus then there's like the actual art of crafting something and, and getting to showcase it. Um, and it, at least that's what, I was giving myself away. It's what drew me to the film industry. Yeah, well, it's, it's you know, the thing is, um, it wasn't always this way really because uh, in the golden age of Hollywood, the actresses got paid the same as the male stars. You know, Catherine Hepburn, Joan Crawford, Betty Davis, Olivia de Havilland, all of those stars got paid as much as Humphrey Bogart and John Wayne and Montgomery Clift, etc. Yeah. So, um, and the other, the other problem is that people, and maybe this is a good thing that came out of this year, there's always been this assumption that, that um, you know, black themed movies only sell in in America, you know, the domestically, um, or that, hilarious. or you know, that 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 female-driven movies uh, are, cannot be big box office, etc. You know, tell that to you know, Girls Trip, to Hidden Figures, to Wonder Woman. You know, I mean, it, regardless of what you think of these movies as movies, it disproves the notion that they can't make a lot of money. And so, to me, that's that's the most, or Lady Bird, for that matter. Mm-hmm. It, it's. I think it's very promising. I mean, certainly, Get Out. Um, 
I mean, Black Panther is about to hit a billion dollars before reaching China, which is still inconceivable to me. Right, and 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 I think it probably you know there's always this 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 thing which apparently is sort of a myth, you know, that black theme movies don't do well in Asia. Okay. Uh, I bet that's not true, certainly, of Black Panther. Chadwick Boseman is one of their highest grossing, I believe this is for South Korea, it's one of the highest grossing film actors over there. Like, that's insane. And I actually just saw a a group of people went over to interview, like, do street-style interviews of South Koreans who had seen Black Panther and just to get their opinion. And, like... Opinions ranged, but almost everyone they talked to had seen the movie. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just beyond, it's ridiculous to think that people don't want to sit down for a good story. You know, if you're not funding those films and they're not getting out and getting a chance to be seen, there's especially no way you can know that they're not going to sell. Yeah. The myth has been dispelled too many times. Yeah, it's a self-defeating prophecy that Hollywood says this so they don't have to make these movies, and therefore they're correct in thinking the way they think, which is not correct. Um, you know, if you make these movies and, 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 and there's, you know, commercial potential there and they're entertaining and they're about people, mm-hmm. uh, then, uh, you know, then, then uh, people will come. But, uh, but you, have to, you have to make more of these movies. Otherwise, it's just the same old stuff, you know, the same old myths and the same old we can't do this because of that. It's not true. Um, and, and and so if you make a couple of million less than you might normally make if by doing some of these films, well, boo-hoo. So now you've made uh, – now you have a $20 million in your bank account instead of $28 million in your bank account. You know, you can't take it with you. you got to be in this business for other reasons too. Mm-hmm. And, and, and one of the things that Oscar is supposed to celebrate is, is, is success and quality – uh, the, one of the beefs I have with Oscars, though, is that they often only go for the so-called good movies that have done well commercially. And I think one reason why Florida Project uh, hardly got noticed in the Oscars is because, I don't know, I, I assume it did okay, it didn't cost much, but it certainly wasn't a blockbuster or anything. And that's probably one reason why. You know, it has the taint of, of, of you know, un, uncommercial attached to it. And so it's not high up on the list of films uh, that 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 get nominated for awards. April Rain, who created the Oscar So White hashtag, recently uh, expressed some frustrations with the fact that Academy members are not necessarily watching these movies. Uh, there is nothing in the guidelines of the to the Academy members that says you know you have to watch the movies. So there's no screen. They have screenings uh, so that people can go see the movies, and of course they send out screeners so you can watch it in the comfort of your own home. But they cannot tell who went and saw it. Uh, someone suggested perhaps that, you know, there's 15, 20 screenings throughout the year and you have to go and get checked off to say, hey, you know, I did actually view this film. They do the secret uh, Oscar conversations kind of every year with Academy members to ask them, basically judge like where their feelings are. One of the members in secret talking about Get Out said, well, I feel like they were really forcing the political aspects of this down my throat. And because of that fact, I did not want to vote for it. Yeah. Basically saying that he didn't feel the film itself was political, which is ridiculous. I know the theme song is in Swahili, but it's basically listen to your ancestors get out. It is entirely a political film. Um, Do you, as a critic, one, do you agree that people should have to see the movies? And is that something that's feasible? Well, yeah. I mean, if you're voting, you need to see the movies. I think in documentary and um, 
uh, foreign language film, there is some sort of stipulation that you have to see the movies by actually going somewhere and signing in or something. At least that was that case uh, at least a year or so ago. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I mean, the other categories, you, you can just vote on a whim without having seen anything. And and particularly if you're talking about cinematography, it's not the greatest thing to vote on cinematography, for instance, if you're seeing it on a home screen, particularly if it's not, you know, one of these humongous screens. Um, so, you know, I think... I think you definitely need to see the movies. It's part of being in the academy is supposed to be an honor. It's an honorary thing. It doesn't just come to you because you make movies. You have to be voted in and so forth. It's it's a big deal. And uh and therefore you should be treating it like a big deal and take your vote seriously the same way you take your vote seriously if you're voting for, you know, president or senator or something like that. I mean, I think you need to 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 see the movies. I mean, in the old days, people would vote for, you know, if you were working for Warner's, Jack Warner said, everybody at Warner's has to vote for a Warner's movie, <laughs> you know. And I guess there was no way to prove it, but if nothing won from Warner's, you probably felt like, you know, am I still going to be here tomorrow? Um, but I, I think it's very important to to see the movies. It sounds stupid. But if you're going to vote for these films, uh, you have to. And, and But somehow... You know, if a studio doesn't get behind a particular movie, if they don't send out enough screeners, they put all their weight on another film that they want to win, that's a problem too. Because you don't, you can only vote on something that you've seen. And, and you know, the, the wonderful Harvey Weinstein a couple of years ago killed a terrific movie called uh, The Immigrant, James Gray's movie, because he had a tiff with, with the director over the ending and, and a few yeah. other, biz, you know, stupid things. And he, he, he deliberately set out to destroy that movie. He, there were very few screeners that were sent out, a, a buggy link, uh, one Academy screening on either coast, no big promotion in the papers, nothing. Even when Marion Cotillard was the co-winner of Best Actress for that film, in the New York Film Critics, none of the Weinstein people showed up at the dinner Jeez. to honor their own movie, even though their office was three blocks away. You know, the sabotaging of films... Uh, is 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 not infrequent. It was it was very apparent in, with the Weinstein Company, but but it's it's been the case in general that studios will sometimes, you know, they say well, we only have a limited budget, so we want to promote this thing that we think is going to win, you know, or they or we don't want to ruin the chances of something or other. So so uh, Sally Hawkins, who was wonderful in this movie, Maudie, uh in a normal year, in the best of worlds, that would have been. The performance, uh, even more so than Shape of Water, that would have that would have you know been in the spotlight. But you know you don't want to split votes. You don't want to do this. You want to confuse people. So you know it's complicated. But but you know, yes, you have to see the films for sure. But the the people who are behind these films have to make more of an effort to promote them and get people to see them. You know, and not play favorites so much because you might be surprised. Some stuff might be really good that you didn't know was good. That people are liking and may get a nomination. This is why we've been telling you guys to go see festivals from cricket to a lot of the instructors that come in here. You going out and, uh, as you said earlier, Peter, forming your own opinion about these films is vital, not just to your education as a filmmaker or as a film enthusiast even, but kind of as a person who just wants to appreciate art. Like if you enjoy the movies and you're a person who appreciates art, even if it's not, you know, what maybe some people would consider highbrow art, um, it's art, it's a craft. And going out to see these films and engaging in them in your 
as yourself as opposed to all the things that come after is it's vital and important and we've talked a lot today about some of the problems within the industry and some of our struggles and i think that comes from a year of like for me like the oscars for a long time was like the highlight of my year i love the oscars it's like glitz and glam and film history and cinema and it's always exciting to kind of see everyone in the same room interacting and like oh we work together or whatever um and and for the 90th you know and especially a, a, an important year with Get Out, which we've talked a lot about how last year was kind of lackluster as far as, like, um, big audience appreciation for films. But Get Out is a film that's going to stand the test of time, and people are going to come back to it. And I kind of had just higher expectations for the 90th Oscars. That being said, I'm A, going to be back for the 91st, and B, loved a lot of moments from here, most specifically Coco's musical win. Hmm. I talk a lot about representation and what it means to me, but the more I think about representation for me as a human being, the more I think about it for other people who are not like me. Um, I have a friend who recently confided in me that her parents are here illegally um, from Mexico, and it took a lot for her to say it to me, and she was, like, you know, nervous about it, and... uh, I had, you know, I, I know about dreamers. I know a lot about the international struggles who either come here or stay here. Um, but it had never touched so close to home. And so to sit there and then see this, uh, this Coco win where we could see Latinx artists like for each other, celebrating each other, announcing each other, and then finally accepting the award. It was really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Coco is proof that art can change and connect the world. And this can only be done when we have a place for everyone and anyone who feels like an other to be heard. This is dedicated with enormous love to my gigantic interwoven family and most especially my wife, my rock, Corey Ray. Love and thanks to my family, my Latino community, um, to my husband, Ryan each for expanding my sense of what it means to be proud of who you are and where you're from. We hope the same thing for everyone who connected with this film. We share this with our immensely talented cast and crew as well as the executive teams at Disney and Pixar. Thanks for the support of my wife, Laura, my three kids, Hannah, Alice, Max, my entire family, I love you. And the biggest thank you of all to the people of Mexico. Coco would not exist without your endlessly beautiful culture and traditions. With Coco, we tried to take a step forward toward a world where all children can grow up seeing characters in movies that look and talk and live like they do. Marginalized people deserve to feel like they belong. Representation matters. Oh, that's such a beautiful speech. I am not crying. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, <laughs> So, so I guess I just want to end with that note because uh, as as we've talked about a lot of the issues, I think before we weren't talking about them. And I know a lot of people are upset that it's, you know, oh, it's so much politics. I just want to go back to being able to go to the movies and enjoy it. And I very much understand uh, that desire because uh, the movies are – it's a house of escape for us for a few hours. But I also think that now that we're getting to talk about them, now that they're open, that the tide will change and that we will see a lot of – uh, the representation and the kinds of stories that, you know, maybe didn't get to be told before. I think it's a it's a brand new day for film. It's going to take a while and it may not always be pretty getting there. But I'm glad that we're here and that it's happening. Sounds good to me. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with okay, us here today, you, Peter. This sure. is really wonderful. Thanks. Guys, we'll see you next week. Um, it's International Women's Day today. 
Uh, so, hey, ladies, making films. Very awesome. Uh, we're going to have a lot of ladies for you coming up for the rest of the month. Excited to talk about their process, what filmmaking means to them, and the impact it's had on their lives. So stay tuned here at the New York Film Academy Hour. I'll see you guys next week. From producers Maria Menunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only, and not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals. 